I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. Oof. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. What a game! There are some days in history you always remember. Where you were, how you saw it. If you're a Samoan of certain age, October 16th, 1991 is one of those days. It's not the celebration of independence or the tragedy of influenza. And it's not the birthday of Seoli Dwayne de Rock Johnson. But back more than 30 years ago, 15,000 kilometers from home, a little bit of history occurred. Quickly taken up the line-up then, and tidy ball for us in summer with a duel from it. Pat Lam again, leading the charge from number eight. Gets out the pass beautifully to Boyenga. That's the day Samoa played Wales at the Rugby World Cup. Jones and Lewis going back. Who gets the touch? The try is awarded. The first try of the game, and dramatically in the opening seconds of the second half. My name's James Nokise, a stand-up comedian whose main rugby position was tackleback. In 1991, I'm nine years old, it's the middle of the night, I'm sitting in front of my grandfather's television with my older cousins in Newtown, Wellington, wrapped up in a continental duvet. I remember the game like it was yesterday, partly because World Rugby has put the game on YouTube. It's Timo Tagaloa. He'll take on the Welshman. The crossfield for the moment, then straightens up. My father immigrated to New Zealand from Samoa, but my mum is also an immigrant from Wales. So what I'm witnessing for the first time are my two Ainga competing against each other and only the second time after Dad that I've seen Samoans in Wales. Surely a try here for Vaifale going over at the corner. The second try then of this second half for Western Samoa. And Wales are in desperate trouble. See, this was a home game. The first time a Rugby World Cup is being played in Wales. The first time I'd ever heard of Cardiff Arms Park, the legendary cathedral of Welsh rugby. Forty-five thousand people are watching at the ground. Back in Samoa, another fifteen thousand are watching live on a big screen at Apia Park. Welsh players look on keenly. It's over. And that surely then is victory for Western Samoa in this game. Time out, time out, time out, time out. Like New Zealand, Wales is not the biggest country in the world. But they were a rugby superpower compared to Samoa, or Western Samoa, as it was called back then, by Westerners. And that's it, the final whistle. What a dramatic victory then. And the shock of the competition so far, the first major shock. What a day for Peter Fatialofa, the Western Samoan skipper. The Western Samoans, winners by 16 points to 13 over Wales. It wasn't just a great day to be Samoan, 
but to be a Pacific rugby fan. People like to say things like it really put the Pacific Islands on the map, but then we've always been on the map. It's just that sometimes, maybe people aren't really looking. That famous win, that little bit of history, looked like the start of something special. And for a while it was. That is it! The end of an amazing tussle. And history has repeated itself. Samoa, to the delight of Brian Williams, have repeated their victory over Wales. This was eight years later, in 1999. They've run out winners here at the Millennium Stadium this afternoon. 38 points to 31, to the great delight of their support. By then, Samoa had made it through to the playoff rounds twice. Beaten Ireland, Argentina and Italy, as well as Wales, and become the darlings of the rugby world, putting teams like Japan away by almost 40 points. And it is a thumping performance by Samoa. Six tries in their demolition of Japan. The final score, Manu Samoa 38, Japan 9. But by 2019, at the Rugby World Cup in Japan, the boot was on the other foot. Facing a Japanese team that now had seven players from Pacific nations eligible to play for them, and to be clear, Samoa didn't have any Japanese players eligible for them. But was anyone actually considering that? Seriously? Anyway, we got pummeled. It's a glorious night for Japanese rugby. A bonus point victory. The host nation now undefeated from three Pool A matches. And they record a 38-19 win against Samoa. Samoans aren't alone in these reversals of fortune. Our Dongan cousins have had an even wilder time. At the 2011 World Cup, they were the only team, apart from the All Blacks, to beat finalists France. In 2021, though, the ABs embarrassed them by 102 points to nil. Which is harder to do in 80 minutes than you might think. But then, at least Samoa and Donga were getting embarrassed by countries that have a history of playing rugby. Fiji. Full-time Uruguay, 30. Fiji, 27. It's the biggest upset of the Rugby World Cup in Japan. Enjoy. How does this happen? One argument is that it's complicated, which is what people often say when they don't want to talk about a problem. What we know is that it's more than just the ups and downs of top-level sport, the predictable highs and lows all teams go through in all sports. This... This is something else. There are a lot of different factors in play, all happening behind the scenes. Governance, eligibility, professionalism, possibly corruption. Legally, I have to say possibly. We're going to look at those factors as we try to uncomplicate things. But if you want just two reasons, then it's the classics. Money and power. If you have a game where the rules and systems put in place by the people in charge favours one set of teams over another, is that game fair? This is Fair Game. Pacific rugby against the world. It's a story about rugby. He's got the bounce. He's handed off his opposite. But it's also a story about money and power. Oh, it's, it's not a fair game now because certainly the island nations haven't uh, got enough money. Sometimes they have to choose between representing their, their country or 
um, not being paid. History and race. I can remember being told to piss off back to the islands, you coconut. Is it a fair game? I'm at Mansmart Stadium in South Auckland, home of Moana Pacifica. In 2021, Moana Pacifica, along with the Fijian Trua, were granted a license to play in a new format of the Super Rugby competition, Super Rugby Pacifique. At various points, Super Rugby has included teams from New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, Japan and Argentina. In 2022, for the first time in the professional era, there were teams of Pacific Islanders representing the Pacific Islands and run by Pacific Islanders. It was always going to be a hard road. In early February, their first preseason game against the Chiefs ended up as a 59-7 blowout. Now we all know the journey that we've come from, and I've, I've mentioned it to you before. 25, 26 years of, of heartache because Pacifica was left out of the mainstream rugby. That's Sir Tui Fasasina Brian Williams, the patron of Moana Pacifica, talking to the team on the field here at Mount Smart after that first game. And, and these guys have had 25, 26 years start on us. So, you know, that, that's what happened tonight. We now know where we start from. Both Moana Pacifica and the Drua had seasons complicated by COVID, but both finished strongly. Mana Moana Alamai! Sensational finish to their first season in Super Rugby. And now look well set to be competitive in 2023 when the Endure will play at home in Fiji and Moana Pacifica will play a home game in Apia. This is, arguably, Pacific Rugby's best ever result. Here in Aotearoa, at a community level, around 15% of players have Pacific ancestry. But in Super Rugby, the figures for New Zealand teams are between 40 and 50%, while the most recent All Black squad for the Northern Hemisphere Tour was nearly 60% Pacifica. It's hovered around the 50% mark for some time now. This is Adi Savia, speaking as all-black captain after winning the Bledisloe Cup in 2021. The result, 38-21. It's simply relentless, this team. What makes it so good? Remember that huge Pacifica contribution to all-black numbers are players. In terms of roles around coaching and governance, there's much less representation, and that has consequences that run right through the boardroom onto the playing field. Is it a fair game now or is it on the path to being a fair game? Oh, it's, it's not a fair game now because it's obvious. Certainly the island nations haven't got enough money. This is Brian Williams talking to me in April of 2022. Before he became the patron of Moana Pacifica, he was the coach of Samoa in the 1990s. And before that, he was a flying winger one of the first Pacific Islanders to play for the All Blacks. 
Put in at the tight hit to New Zealand, who's going, who's got it, he's running on the on the short side, he's downfield, he's still going, he's got it out to Williams, they won't stop him, Williams has flashed through two tackles, well then we'll say he's gone past Jones and he's left him standing and he goes straight between the two. He was also president of the New Zealand Rugby Union from 2011 to 2013. Now, whenever I point out our glorious World Cup run to my Tongan friends, they always point out two things. One, Tonga was never colonised. And two, they actually went bigger earlier. It's Tully, but a Kalu. This is going to be a great try. Richardson won't get him. It's a try! Brian, you are a uh, Pacific and New Zealand rugby uh, legend, a, a chief amongst us from the uh, 1970s. Do you remember in 1973, Tonga bet Australia? Yes, I, I do. I do remember uh, that occasion. And of course, they're the heroes of all the crowd here. They have defeated Australia by 16 points to 11. It was the 150th Test match in which Australia has played. It's the second only in which Tonga has played against Australia. And of course, and it was a special, special occasion. What it means to you, as you know, you are the Samoan of New Zealand rugby, to see that kind of Pacific, not just uh, representation, but achievement, uh, you know, against one of the powers. Like, what, what does it do for you over here in New Zealand? Well, it just indicated what was possible if Pacifica people and rugby players were given an opportunity. And that victory was against all the odds. It was against the odds. But the funny thing was that Fiji had done something similar a few years earlier, beating a line-strength team in the UK 29 points to 9. And what an occasion it's been for the Fijians. Two people gave them a chance against the Barbarian team. Now, this Fijian win was against a team full of guys who would come out to New Zealand the following year and, as the 1971 British and Irish Lions, which included Welshmen like J.P.R. Williams, Phil Bennett and Gareth Edwards, beat the All Blacks in a test series. But the English commentator there had a good reason for why they lost. But it's the old, old story that a touring team that plays together it's always a better bet than a scratch 15, however distinguished the individuals in that team are. Although in 1977, having just been on tour to New Zealand, when the Lions went to Fiji, the only time they've ever played against a Pacific team, they lost 25-21. This time, it wasn't the old, old story of a touring team that plays together. This time, Western commentators found a new old story complaining about the referee and the players having hangovers. And, ah, oh, anyway, it wasn't a real test match. It didn't even get that official status because the Lions didn't award caps. It's almost as if they didn't take Fiji seriously. But hey, it was the 1970s. And look, some really crazy stuff happened in the 1970s. In his first year, he made rugby history as the first Pacifica player to play for the All Blacks and be granted honorary white status to play in South Africa in 1970. And we'll get into that side of Sir Brian's yep, rugby history. That's our shortly. Brian. Sir Tuifasasina Brian Williams, who as a 19 year old in 1970 
was granted honorary white status by South Africa, just in order to play for the All Blacks. Honorary white status. It was a history-making tour because it was also the first tour where players of, of dark blood uh, were allowed to be selected uh, for the All Blacks uh, prior to that. Uh, the abhorrent uh, system of apartheid uh, prevented any Māori or Pacifica players uh, being included in the All Blacks. Now look, I'm not going to get started on apartheid, but let's just note a couple of things. Firstly, rugby particularly New Zealand rugby, worked with apartheid-era South Africa for a lot longer than it should have. Secondly, one of the ways the apartheid system was kept in place was by denying voting rights to the black majority. You might want to remember that about the votes. But let's get back to Brian Williams and what he got up to after he stopped playing. He helped coach the highly successful Auckland side of the late 1980s and then went to do the same with Samoa. What did that look like from the inside? Lots of ambition that people still wanted to achieve but didn't have the resources, really, the the money to enable the very best things uh, to happen for the team. So it was, you know, our effort in in the 91 World Cup, the the Manu Samoa, and, and right through the 90s was largely done on a, a shoestring budget. Uh, sometimes there wasn't enough gear, mm. uh, playing gear, and, and uh, where was the money coming from, all that sort of thing. As a young rugby fan, watching that game in 1991 between Wales and Samoa, I was interested only in what happened on the field, because that's all you can see on the TV, right? And really, that's all that matters to a nine-year-old. So it never occurred to me that what was happening off the field could have an impact on the outcome of a game. And anyway, Samoa seemed to be doing pretty well. But then things started to change in the mid-1990s. In 95, uh, mm. when the game went professional, the Pacific Islands were left totally out in the cold, despite the fact that you know, Samoa had made the quarterfinals in both 91 and 95, and the Fiji had made the quarterfinals in 1987. And despite that, the powers that be decided there was no place for Pacifica in, in Super Rugby, which at the time, for me and a number of others, was absolutely galling. Uh, great sense of disappointment, great sense of grievance. Was there any reason given back in the 90s when the, you know, they didn't get on board with the funding? Was there any dialogue? No, there was, there was next to no dialogue. But in the meantime, it meant that Pacifica was left out in the cold. And um, I've got to say, we've probably struggled ever since. So that moment when rugby went professional, that was key. I'm going to turn to my Palangi podcast partner here, John Daniel. He lived that moment as a player when rugby went pro, both here and in France, and then wrote a book about it, Confessions of a Rugby Mercenary. So, JD, is it fair to say you've always been tuned into the money side of things? Mate, at the time it felt like winning lotto without even buying a ticket. I was just 23, 24, playing NPC for Wellington at the time. I had my first game in 1994 when it was still amateur, and turning pro hadn't been on my radar but once it was here, it changed the shape of rugby, particularly off the field. Well, how's that? Well, as a player, you're the centre of attention, so you like to think you're the heart of the game. 
But really, players are more like soldiers on the front line, fighting individual battles. The big outcomes are dictated by the strategy of the higher-ups. The real decisions are often made behind the scenes, and they're as much about supply lines or money or politics as anything. So why the shift to professionalism in 1995? There were a number of reasons. One big one at the time was that rugby union was bleeding top players to the professional league competitions, and that wasn't healthy. But by many accounts, the trigger was the performance of another Pacifica winger wearing the black jersey of New Zealand, this time at the Rugby World Cup in 1995. Right to Lamu, he's got the bounce, he's handed up his opposite. Lamu, oh, oh. Yep, that's Keith Quinn. New Zealand's voice of rugby enjoying a private moment with millions of people. It's never been officially confirmed, but the story goes that media magnate Rupert Murdoch saw Tongan Kiwi Jonah Lomu steamrolling the English team, scoring four tries in the semi-finals. And Murdoch said he had to have him. Right. And that kind of spectacular play was made for TV because it would draw an audience and make money for any channel showing it. Yeah, and over the last few decades, the money involved in professional sport has kept going up as live competition remains the one thing that audiences will tune in for, and that means advertising dollars. The 1995 World Cup in South Africa delivered a surplus of £17 million. Just 20 years later, for the 2015 version held in England, that number had gone up nearly tenfold to £163 million. Anyway, within a few months of that all-black match against England, rugby was no longer just a game. It was a business. And, in many ways, professional rugby was a great thing for Pacific players and their families. Overnight, young men were able to get seriously well-paid jobs. You know, many of our players at that stage uh, went overseas uh, to ply their trade. People like Pat Lamb and... Inga Tuigamala and Junior Paramore and, and Apollo Perilini, people like that. And they did brilliant. Tuigamala goes. Tuigamala over the 22. Tuigamala all the way. A magnificent score. Vainga le lunga Tuigamala belelua visolai. Or as Kiwis call them, Inga the Wanger, who had previously gone to English league club Wigan signed with Newcastle's rugby union team for a reported £1 million, a record at the time. So that meant the possibility of lucrative careers in the game. Yeah, but it also meant that the people who had the money were in positions of real power. They got to decide how rugby union would be played at the top level, both international and at the professional level that sits just underneath it. The teams that players rely on for their wages, like Super Rugby here in New Zealand, but in the Northern Hemisphere, the clubs. And, as we're going to see that didn't always work out so well for teams from the Pacific. And that's because, I hope you're sitting down, the Pacific Islands don't have very much money. If you don't make an effort to try and bridge that gap between the haves and the have-nots, then it's never going to improve. It's recognising what the issues are. And like any other problem, trying to come up with practical uh, solutions. World rugby has a solution. It's got the money, but it needs to make sure that it is an even playing field 
which takes into account all the inequalities that have existed up till this point in time. Not quite a level playing field, if you could see that. This is Finne Enisi, New Zealand-born of Tongan descent. He's a proud, respectful young man who has literally just sat down in the seat vacated by Brian Williams, which might be why he's quiet. In 2022, he was part of the Moana Pacifica squad, and he's back again for the coming season. But in 2021, he was part of the Tongan team, the Akalitahi, who took on the All Blacks. A new season of Test Rugby, a new stage for the All Blacks as the 2021 campaign kicks off against the Akali Tahi of Tonga at Mount Smart Stadium. Most of us were just like working 9 to 5, playing club rugby, and then we just get a call to come in the following week and play the All Blacks. <laughs> Full time athletes, like best in the world. And it's just hard to be able to match that um, intensity. And yeah, it's kind of disheartening. At halftime here at Mount Smart Stadium, New Zealand 43, Tonga nil. Like, like, how are we supposed to keep the game competitive? Left. Oh, he's going to get one, finally, with the last play of the game. George Bridge gets a deserved try, and it's 100 up for the All Blacks. And the All Blacks win it by 102 to nil. Yeah, I guess World Rugby's not helping us um, as much as they could, just leaving us to play the All Blacks like that. <laughs> With five days of preparation, I can't really expect us to do, do much, eh? be competitive at all. So we're hearing quite a lot about World Rugby here, and not in a particularly good way. So JD, who are these guys? They're the governing body of the game, in charge of the big decisions, making the laws and enforcing them, running competitions like the Rugby World Cup. All right, so are they dropping the ball? Because you almost work for them in Samoa, right? Yeah, almost. This goes back about 10 years. I'd gone over to France in the late 90s, and after I finished playing at a club called Montpellier, I helped set up a pathway for young players coming out of the Samoan High Performance Unit, the On Island Academy there so they could come over to France and start on professional careers with Montpellier. They'd still be able to play for their national sides. That would be built into their contracts. We'll talk a little bit more later on about how they can get complicated. But at the time, World Rugby wanted me to help them expand that programme out to other professional clubs and potentially other countries. But in the end, it fell over. So why was that? Yeah, well, I'd also been working as a journalist, and while I was never told anything officially... The word that filtered back was that because I'd been working as a journalist, they didn't want me inside the system. Right. Because then you'd know too much? (laughs) That's right. In 2007, I was out on the islands writing for a French magazine. I got to know one of the guys from World Rugby who was working in the Pacific, and he felt the islands were getting a raw deal, that there wasn't enough funding for them, and the big boys were keeping the money to themselves. And to illustrate that... He told me about this additional payment from the World Cup that was going to what they call the Tier 1 nations, £3 million each, while the islands and the other smaller teams, the Tier 2s, got nothing. Well, what was the justification for that? Well, it was interesting in that when I first approached World Rugby, their comms guy denied it and wanted to know who leaked that information. Eventually, I got someone else, the head of English rugby, to confirm it, 
And then another comms guy got in touch with me from World Rugby to say, this had all been a misunderstanding, but yes, this additional payment was because the big teams, the Six Nations and the rugby championship teams, they were going to miss out on broadcast deals and gate takings while they were playing at the World Cup. So they deserve to be compensated. But the islands and the other teams, they don't get any money from the broadcast and gate takings. So they didn't get compensation? Correct. Is it a fair game? Does this still happen? Yeah, but my understanding is that for the Rugby World Cup in 2023, it's up to seven and a half million pounds each. So times 10, that's 75 million pounds. Like New Zealand, 150 million. So New Zealand, 150 million from the World Cup goes straight to the pockets of the richest teams while the others get nothing because they have nothing to begin with? Pretty much. Although World Rugby would tell you that they put money into development, and in fact, they've put money into Moana Pacifica and the Drua, a couple of million dollars each. But look, relatively speaking, it's peanuts. So what does that tell us? I think it tells us two things. Firstly, if you think about how the guy I knew, how he was leaking this information because he was annoyed about what he saw as unfairness, it shows you that the people who work for World Rugby don't necessarily agree with the way it's run. So there are power struggles within that institution. Yeah, and we're going to dig into that as we go through this series to try to understand how that works, who has the power, and what they're trying to do with it. What's the other thing? Well, secondly, for me, it shows that the decisions that are made at the heart of the system have a particular logic to them. It's presented as commercial logic, but underneath that, it's a way of making sure the system reinforces those who are already powerful. Now, we're going to talk to the chair of World Rugby, Sir Bill Beaumont, in more depth in episode six. But we did put that question to him about fairness. Is it a fair game? Good question. Uh, because the game is professional, then you, you obviously you need economies to support that. And, you know, it, you're always going to get the bigger countries mm. who've got deeper pockets mm. And so they can put it into uh, their infrastructure in their own countries that will then generate more players for them. Uh, So what we have to do is make sure that we put into place so that other countries can succeed. For people from my generation who either had a PlayStation or, in my case, a cousin with a PlayStation, you might not realise it, but you've actually heard Bill Beaumont before as well. Mercy me, that could have put him in Ward 4. I hope not, Bill. That's a maternity ward. Yep, he's one of the Jonah Lomu Rugby guys, which in certain communities is a stronger title than Chairman of World Rugby. By the way, that PlayStation game also sits in the Pacific Collection at Te Papa, New Zealand's National Museum, because it's the first time ever that a Pacific Islander fronted a computer game. Did you ever play the Jonah Lomu rugby computer game in the 90s, John? Uh, no, I was mistaken for Jonah once, though, after a blues training session at Pukekohe. We'd been signing autographs, and I think I ran into a, a short-sighted fan. But it was the greatest moment of my rugby career. Well, that's almost the same as playing the computer game. I used to get mistaken for Susan DeVoy. So what do we need to know about Bill Beaumont? Well, for a guy from the north of England, he has surprisingly deep connections with the Pacific, one of which we'll hear more about in that final episode. 
you have a long history with Pacific Rugby because yeah. you were in Fiji uh, with the famous, at least on this side of the world, Lions Test. Absolutely. Uh, we lost the fourth test here at Eden Park by a single point and then uh, played Fiji on a Tuesday afternoon on the way home and we got well beaten there. And in fact, I, uh, Bosco Tikisuva sent me uh, a copy of his autobiography of which 50% is devoted to that match. <laughs> <laughs> Was that your first time in Fiji? Uh, the first time I've been to Fiji, yep, that's right. But my actual debut wearing a white shirt for England was England under-23s against Tonga. Wow. And that was the first time that I represented England, and that was at Twickenham against the, the Tongan national team. Do you think uh, the reason the Lions have never gone back to Fiji uh, is because of that loss uh, from your team? I don't think so. I think the Lions would love to go back to Fiji. You know, I think... Uh, you know, touring the Pacific Islands is one of the great sort of uh, rugby experiences, you know, that sort of, uh, especially when you, you come from a, a sort of uh, a European sort of background where basically, you know, players are well looked after, you've got great facilities. You, you go to Fiji and go to Samoa and Tonga and, and realise sort of, uh, you know, facilities wouldn't necessarily be what, what you used to at home. But just they is this conveyor belt of, of talent that come out of those islands. Now, look, I want to ask listeners for a bit of linguistic grace for this 70-year-old former rugby player from the north of England. I cut my teeth in UK stand-up comedy in the Northern Club, so I feel pretty confident telling you that conveyor belt of talent is a compliment. He's speaking to the consistent emergence of world-class players from the islands and also acknowledging the clear gap in resources and programmes for that talent to thrive. So, with that in mind... Do you think it's uh, fair that there's uh, that sort of gap between what's available to you know, the Pacific players in the Pacific and, and, and what's available in the European countries? Well, what we're trying to do is sort of, uh, within World Rugby, is close that gap and give as many opportunities as we can to the Pacific Islands. And I think that's what we, we've done. Uh, you're always going to lose players. So always, you're going to lose the marquee players, signing players, who will want to go and sort of uh, and play for the European clubs because that's obviously you know, where, where there is a huge amount of money still. We're going to have a closer look at what World Rugby is doing over the course of the series. But that point about money... That is actually one of the big tensions for the Pacific diaspora. And not just in rugby. It's more complicated than my Pacific 101 version, but I'll give it a go and we'll come back to it in the next episode. For many Pacific peoples, the money sent home isn't just for your family. It's for the village, and there's politics involved in who presents that money and what it's used for. But there's pride and status to representing your nation too. So when the club team makes you money and the national team can lose you money, that's a genuine dilemma. We are very much aware of what, what is happening in the Pacific. And we look upon that it, it's sort of, uh, it is a huge, huge potential for the global game. But also what it is, is that Pacific rugby put a smile on people's faces. When you see Pacific Island teams playing, then they're enjoyable to watch. Again, let's see the intent of what he's saying. He's talking about playing with a kind of communicative joy, about flair, about passion. Pacific teams are renowned for their running game, feats of skill, speed and strength. It's just... 
that language has a flip side. For Pacific people, there is a precedent of being told that they're street smart, but not book smart. That they're somehow less professional. Is this a bit like the West Indies and Calypso cricket? The perception that some teams from countries that are also beach holiday destinations are just out there having fun, enjoying themselves and entertaining us at the same time? There are parallels, but differences too. I mean, imagine if while the West Indies were trying to become the dominant professional team they did, Viv Richards is playing for Australia, Michael Holding is playing for New Zealand. Now again, let me be clear, Bill Beaumont has an affection for the Pacific. He's not trying to be patronising. If I fought any different, he probably would have ended up in Ward 4. I hope not, James. That's the maternity ward. Is Pacific rugby fundamental to world rugby and growing the game? Absolutely. Well, it, it is fundamental that sort of what you have is that enormous raw material, men and women, you know, who uh, are fantastic athletes, great ball players, and have all the attributes to be, and as they are, mm. you know, outstanding rugby players. And that is the absolute correct answer when a Pacific Islander asks you if Pacific Islanders are fundamental. I'm not sure it is the accurate answer, because for such a fundamental part of world rugby, they don't seem to hold much power. So, John, who does hold power? Because it's not just Sir Bill, is it? Underneath him, the people who effectively run world rugby are what's known as the Tier 1 countries, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, France and Italy in the Northern Hemisphere, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina and South Africa in the South. Ah, so basically the old colonial powers and their proxies. That is one way of looking at it. World rugby is governed effectively under a cartel structure. This is Rob Nicholl, the head of the New Zealand Rugby Players Association and former head of the International Rugby Players Association. Basically the trade union for professional players, right? Yeah, exactly. Rob has been working for the players for well over a decade now. He's hugely influential and has a really deep understanding of how the game works. So what he's talking about there, world rugby being run as a cartel, is important. It's pretty strong language. Yeah, if you're talking about a cartel structure, the point is that it's fundamentally anti-competitive, where a bunch of people with similar interests work together to give themselves the advantage in a way that is considered uh, not cool by those who find themselves outside the system. Here's Rob Nicholl again. It served rugby quite well for a long period of time where the top 10 unions effectively run world rugby. I think there's 119 member unions. So what you're talking about is the evolution of governance to be reflective of its membership. So it's making decisions in respect of all of its membership as opposed to, if you like, being slanted towards the 10 that actually control the governance structures. And they're fair points. Meanwhile, Pacific teams suffer by not being part of the decision-making process at the highest level. Tier 2 and developing nations have probably not got the prominence or the focus they deserve because they haven't had the key people around the governance table. And the conversations where decisions are made, they haven't been there. Yeah, and in concrete terms, whether it's World Rugby's table or someone else's table, that has a real impact. Remember what Brian Williams was saying about Super Rugby getting it wrong right at the start of professionalism by not including Pacifica? You know, when Super Rugby was formed, that was when the opportunity was. And it wasn't taken advantage of and it wasn't delivered on. In fact, I'm not even sure if it was even considered. And then 
from then on, everyone felt that commercially it didn't stack up. The market wasn't big enough. So instead of including Donga, Fiji and Samoa when the competition was looking to expand, the thinking focused on where big money audiences might come from. So a team from Japan was brought in, there was discussions around the States. It was more about if we're going to expand this competition, it's about delivering bigger commercial outcomes because we need commercial outcomes to stay competitive in this world because the UK and Europe are massive. Rob says as recently as three years ago, there was still no chance of Pacific teams appearing in Super Rugby. But then things changed almost overnight. COVID hit and South Africa chose to go to the Northern Hemisphere. It went the other way around. In fact, Australia and New Zealand really, really needed some Pacifica teams. <laughs> and how ironic was that? And so things have come together and what we thought wasn't possible has been proved possible. So we shouldn't forget that even if the inclusion of Moana Pacifica and the Drua is a good result, the driver wasn't a change in attitudes towards Pacific rugby. It was really because a global pandemic was hitting the bottom lines of the big boys. OK, let's get a bit of context around this. Meet Professor Lisa Uperesa, Senior Lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. We wanted to know a bit more about how those power structures work. I started off asking her about the importance of money in sport. Honestly, it's fundamental. When you look at different tiers, uh, you look at different programs, and it takes money to run these. It takes money to have the facilities, to have the coaching expertise, to be able to run the camps, uh, the workshops, to have training tables. All of these things cost money. And so when you have programs that are really, that are really flush, and you can see them being able to bring all of the advantages in the developmental process for the players. And you see there's a different result on the field as well. Versus others that are a little bit more on a shoestring budget, it's a big difference. Is no question. And those groups that have that advantage, they tend to like to keep it. It's really clear that you have, you know, the kind of former colonial powers, and, you know, the former colonial subjects being really differently situated in relation to one another. And all of that is undergirded by histories of racism. But there is a real interest, and this is across the sporting world, across programs, of protecting privilege and being able to continue to dominate the game um, and continue to deliver results. So the call to equalize things is usually not seen very positively. You know, people don't want to equalize if they are in a situation where they're dominating the game. They're dominating in part because of the resources, the money and all of that that they have access to. Is that easier to maintain when you don't have representation at a governance level? Yeah, because how do these decisions get made and how does it get decided to do something differently? and to redistribute or redirect resources differently. People have to make those decisions, and they have to be in a position of power to make them. Professor Uperesa says that while progress is being made, we don't yet have a critical mass of Pacific people in those decision-making roles. I hope they continue to diversify at the governance level, because it's really important, you know, if you look at the relationship between governance and, uh, you know, 
coaching and administration and, and players and communities, um, you want to kind of pull back some of that imbalance, I think, at the governance level. But I think the other issue actually is how are people kind of prepared or brought into those roles, right? Are there structural opportunities that are meant to prepare people to be able to, to be part of that pool that's picked, that put into different governance roles? And that's an ongoing challenge. Pacifica make up around 20% of global professional playing numbers and more than 20% of the players at the Men's Rugby World Cups. After a recent series of reforms to broaden out membership, the World Rugby Council is made up of 52 members. There's one from Fiji, one from Samoa, two from Oceania, made up of another Fijian, who we'll talk to later, and one from Papua New Guinea. No one from Donga. It's worth mentioning that Italy like the other Tier 1 teams, have three members, despite ranking consistently lower than Pacifica teams. And that membership translates into votes, one for each member. And the basic equation is the more votes you have, the more power you have. At the top of World Rugby, there's an executive committee where the nuts and bolts decisions are made that implement the everyday administration of power. And it's made up of 12 people, each with a vote, Although the reality is that at this level, some have more power than others. There has never been anyone of Pacific origin on that committee. Later on, we're going to look at the nuts and bolts of that voting system. It has real-world consequences because so many of our people come from situations where money is tight. Here's Fine Nise again, the centre for Moana Pacifica. He's talking about home life with his brother Lotu, who plays in the back row now for Moana Pacifica. Going to school, coming back home, mum's um, got dinner ready, and then we just noticed that there's only two plates for me and Lotu. And we always ask her, where's your plate? And she's, she said, oh, you guys eat first and I'll have whatever's left. And that's just stuck there, there to my heart. Every day, just seeing the sacrifices my mum's made. So I just want to make the most of this opportunity. Fine says being with Moana Pacifica isn't just another gig. Being run by and for Pacifica makes a huge difference. They truly understand our people. Just knowing where we come from, the struggle. Every Polynesian knows the struggle. So I guess that's where they can kind of relate. It's not excuses, it's just reality. The world we live in today, it's, it's not a kind world. Because when it comes to the international game, at test level, you can rarely see the disparities and how the lack of money in the islands affects the very real choices that players have to make when they're thinking, not just about themselves, but also their wider family. Yeah, Rob Nickel from the Players Association says that the way this skews the playing field is obvious. And while he hopes it will change, he's not holding his breath. I would just love to think in my lifetime that a player doesn't consider the financial differentiation between where they choose to play their rugby, if they're choosing between Australia and Samoa. It's actually a much deeper sense of connection and, and who they really want to aspire to be a part of and who they want to play for based on purely that, not the financial prospects. 
When the Dongan team got together last year to play the All Blacks, before they got pumped by a hundred points, the team knew they weren't at full strength. And they knew why. Finne and Nisi again. Oh, they kind of small talking around the Tonga camp. Like, oh, this guy couldn't come because he didn't get released from his club. Da, da, da. But it's kind of sad to see those kind of situations. We just hope that it kind of changes as we go forward, especially going into the World Cup. Some of the Tonga boys are just gutted that we can't fully field the best Tongan team worldwide. Just a pity that that's just the way world rugby is. Now it's pretty obvious that this isn't the way that international rugby is supposed to be. It's meant to be the best players from each nation playing against each other. I'm pretty sure that's what was happening when Samoa bet Wales in 1991. But this situation, where players are prevented from representing their country, that happens far too often, and it can have a big effect. And JD, one of your old clubs was caught out doing exactly this in France, right? Yeah, it's been a widespread issue, and we're going to look at that in the next episode when we're talking about the island kingdom of Tonga. Is it a fair game? Fair game, Written and produced by James Norkise, Tale Anderson and John Daniel for Bird of Paradise Productions, Radio New Zealand and Pacific Media Network. Language Programme Director, Matt Tufunga. Executive Producers for RNZ, Justin Gregory, Katie Gossett and Tim Watkin. Sound Engineers, Rangi Poek, Alex Harmer and Jeremy Ansel for RNZ, Harrison Edwards at PMN. Music and Sound Design, Anonymous, Faumu Matthew Salapo. Visuals, Manatoa Productions, Anonymous, and Krista Barnaby for RNZ. Additional reporting by Lethe Mavono. Additional sound recorded by Rudy Bartley at WT Media in Samoa. Special thanks to Don Mann, Louis Villasoni, Langi Poiva, Cheryl Jackson, Jody Hoane, Josie Campbell, Elijah Fafio, and Ingangaro Fakafi. Thanks to Sky Sport, TVNZ, TV3, and Discovery for game audio from TV broadcasts. RNZ Commissioning, Jody Hwane, Tim Burnell. RNZ Acting Head of Content, Veronica Schmidt. RNZ Interim Chief Content Officer, Megan Whelan. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.